welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast, episode number 170, and my guest this week is Lily Bailey, who is an author, a journalist, and an activist who has been writing and speaking about OCD and mental illness for a long time. And in this episode, I chat to Lily about her experiences with obsessive compulsive disorder and how it's affected her over the years. And we chat a lot about her new book, which is called When I Feel Red, and it's written for middle grade age children. And it's about a young girl with dyspraxia, which is a neurological condition that affects movement and coordination. And it's something that Lily has lived with since childhood. And in this episode, we talk about dyspraxia, how it's affected Lily over the years and why she decided to write about it. We chat about writing for young people and more specifically how Lily approaches challenging topics like mental illness when writing for young people. Why that's important and why we shouldn't be scared to have these challenging conversations with the young people in our lives. We talk about navigating the challenging teenage years. We talk about school, being different, trying to fit in and the importance of telling stories and finding compassion for others through reading stories. And it's a really wonderful conversation it was great to chat to Lily about her books and it was great to chat about dyspraxia it's not something I knew a great deal about it was really cool to get Lily's insights and get Lily to explain it to me and how it's affected her over the years and obviously dyspraxia is a neurological condition right it's not a mental health thing but I think anything that affects how you see yourself and how you fit in and makes you feel different or othered or makes you feel shame, all of these things impact how we see ourselves and our place in the world. And that can have huge implications for our mental health, right? So it was really interesting to explore that and particularly how Lily writes about that, but in books that are aimed for young people. When I spoke to Lily, I hadn't actually got round to reading When I Feel Red. It had only arrived the day before from the publisher. But since we've recorded, I've made a start on it and it's a really wonderful book. It's really good fun it's really engaging so I can highly recommend it and if you want to know more about Lily and her writing then the link to her socials are in the episode notes and all of her books are available wherever you get your books from if you would like to watch this conversation you can do so by joining the patreon community for the proper mental podcast it's three pound a month to become a proper mentalist and you get all the video episodes of recordings I put them up on the day that I record and I'm always well ahead so there's quite often a few exclusives up there things that aren't available anywhere else. It's also where I post any updates about people who are coming up on the show and who I'll be speaking to. And something that the Patreon supporters can do, if they so wish, is to submit questions to upcoming guests. You can pop them on the Patreon and I'll get those asked during the episode. And like I say, it's £3 a month and that just helps Proper Mental to keep ticking over. It means I can stay independent and stay ad-free and just keep putting this podcast out every single week and if that's something you'd like to be involved in and something you'd like to help me with then the link is in the episode notes you can of course support the show for free by leaving me a five-star review wherever you're listening to it now and this is episode 170 of the proper mental podcast with lily bailey thank you very much for listening enjoy
Um, I'll just intro this episode and we'll just okay. dive, dive straight in, mate. So this is the Proper Mental Podcast and we're back again. And this time, do you know what? I just got a lot of, sorry, I just got my words completely wrong. Let me try that again. Oh God, I've put the fear in you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just can feel my mouth going away from me then. Sorry. <laughs> this is another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Lily Bailey. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Oh, mate, thank you for joining me. It's um, I was having a bit of a look around making some notes for this yesterday, and I didn't actually realise when we booked the chat that today is publication day. Like, it's the actual day today the book is out, right? Yeah, it's the perfect day to be doing an interview. It is yeah. out today. Out in the wild. So, I mean, firstly, obviously, congratulations. And secondly, how does it feel to have another, you know, another baby out in the world, so to speak? Oh, yeah, thank you. It's really exciting. Today's been nice. I've been, um, I've signed a few copies in um, my local bookshop. It's all going to sort of kick off next week because schools are on half term at the moment. But next week, I've got a big book tour coming up of quite a lot of schools. So it's going to be um, meeting loads of kids next week, which is really exciting. Today is actually, I'm sort of, I've done a few interviews. I'm just um it's not too hectic it's nice it's I've sort of been able to take a few moments to reflect and be like this is this is exciting oh mate that's cool yeah so you go into the schools do you like read a bit of it or how does that work on the school stuff school stuff is really fun and um, you go in and uh it's usually like an assembly hall or a sort of bigger space or sometimes just a classroom it depends on different sizes but yeah chat to the kids tell them a bit about the book about yourself sometimes do a reading and then at the end uh ask questions and then that that's sometimes when all hell breaks loose <laughs> they ask they ask the funniest things but it's amazing that's my favorite bit yeah yeah I'm sure my kids love it when um, <laughs> someone comes in it doesn't matter what they're coming in to talk about yeah. they absolutely love the novelty of it you know it's such a cool such a cool thing um, I, I mean the, the book's probably a great place for us to start today mate what's the sort of can you give me the sort of the synopsis a bit of an overview of what yeah. the, what the new one's about of course. So um, When I Feel Red is about a girl called April and she's 12. Uh, she's in year eight, which I don't know about you, but I remember as a bit of a hellish time. But she um, she's dyspraxic like me. So uh, dyspraxia um, is a, it's considered a neurodivergence and a learning difficulty. Um, so she, it, and it, it, it just, when you're dyspraxic, you struggle with sort of carrying out movements and coordination. You can often appear a bit clumsy, but it also can affect uh, your executive function. So your ability to sort of concentrate, remember, process. And so she's, she's, so she's, um, she finds learning quite difficult. She finds it quite difficult to pay attention. She gets into quite a lot of trouble at school, um, and she's and she's sort of just learning that she experiences the world quite differently from other people. Um, and she she's kind of a mix of things. She's a contra a walking contradiction because she'll sort of shout at you that she doesn't care what you think, but at the same time she is really craving acceptance and a community, and that's quite challenging for her. And all of this is sort of couched alongside a, an adventure story of her becoming quite fixated on a local tabby cat that appears to be stray and deciding that she's the only one who can save it. Um, and that sort of comes from, I'm a, I'm, I've, I'm a really big animal lover. I love all things animal rescue related. I watch a lot of sort of programs like that. And I've even sort of done a bit of it myself in the past um, in different, with different organizations. So I love that. And so that was really fun to get to write about too. Yeah, it's um, dyspraxia is not something I know a great deal about, mate. Can we sort of dig into that a little bit? Is it something that kind of, um, I suppose I'm interested in what led to 
it sounds like the sort of thing that there might be a lot of confusion into actually getting a name for what you're experiencing. Is it, would that be right? Definitely. And I think a lot of people are dyspraxic and they don't necessarily know or they don't have a diagnosis of it. And I mean, that's kind of you, the the point at which you might you'd look into sort of actually getting a diagnosis and maybe looking for some help with it is if it really affects your day to day life. You can have it quite mildly and and just sort of, you know, you'll probably be the butt of jokes among your friends about the fact that you're a bit you're quite clumsy and prone to dropping things. And it yeah, it's, it can kind of range from quite mild to more severe. Um, for, for me, the way it was picked up that I had it was that I um, really struggled to learn to walk. Um, I didn't walk till really late. I also didn't crawl. And so now I know that that sort of um, comes from the fact that my brain wasn't like processing the right movements I would need to do those things but my parents had no idea what was going on um and sort of just dragged myself around on my bum apparently getting quite getting quite muddy my mum always describes watching all the other kids like playing on the um on the playground while I'm just like rolling around in the mud but um eventually I think I got a letter home from school saying um Oh, you know, Lily, you know, we're a bit worried about Lily. She keeps falling off the climbing frame. She can't, she can't seem to sort of do the monkey bars or she's just always falling over. Um, and so that combined with the um with the walking difficulties, it was realized I had dyspraxia. Um and so it's it's sort of affected me all my life in different ways. Those were some of the earliest ways. It, it, yeah, I am quite clumsy, struggle with hand-eye coordination um drop a lot of things even last week I hit my head quite badly and had to go day and even concussion just oh, that nice. just that sort of thing but um yeah sometimes I can laugh about it and then at other points in my life it, I found it quite difficult and quite upsetting like when I was at school we're quite a small class size uh 14 and it was always just a few of us who'd be like left behind while the team went off to play sports against another school which I was never picked for because it just wasn't um I wasn't I couldn't do it but um but yeah dyspraxia it can it can affect you in, in lots of different ways and there's lots of different present presentations of it um and it's something that as I've gotten older I've become more comfortable talking about and um yeah and just and just being more open more open about I used to be quite ashamed of it and I'm not I, I'm not in that place with it anymore yeah I think when these things come when we're were younger you know especially around the sort of the ages of the characters in your book as well like anything that makes you different or stand out is that's something to be feared of I think you know I certainly remember at that age for me it was like I would search for safety in the pack you know I was very much a sort of um you know I didn't want to just very much middle of the road, you know, and try and blend in with everyone else to kind of hide my you know what I perceive to be like weird things that no one can find out about but if it's an actual, like a neurological condition, well, then you can't really hide that, right? You can't, it's so much different. Like, you know, for me, I was very anxious, right? So I used to like pretend to be super confident and then people didn't know I was anxious. But if you're like dropping things and falling over, that's a lot, a lot harder to kind of, to not, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, do know what you're saying. I do know what you're saying because I had OCD as well. And actually I think my OCD was easier to hide because I did a lot of, with my OCD, most of the compulsions I did were kind of mental. Um, so they were all in my head. Um, actually, 
they started off more physical when I was younger, but so I'd sort of touching things, tapping to make things sort of safe and okay. But when it was pointed out to me by people, oh, that's a bit weird. Then I sort of internalized it and was able to do compulsions more mentally. So in that it would be sort of like repeating safe phrases and ruminating about my like actions and whether they were good or bad. But as you say, like with something like dyspraxia, it's quite difficult to, you can't just suddenly decide to internalize it. Like you're either quite clumsy and accident prone or not but at the same time there were aspects of it that I definitely um did work to sort of mask or hide better like I like in the end throughout my school journey I really struggled at school in the early years really really struggled um with just keeping up with everything and was in the bottom sets for everything including English which sort of broke my heart because if you were in the higher sets you got to do more creative writing whereas if you were in the bottom sets you were sort of just like focusing on handwriting and spelling and stuff and that really annoyed me because I was just like I want to write but as I got older I actually developed sort of other ways for um like remembering facts and information I, I was very with dyspraxia often you're you're a slow processor so it, in the way it affects speech and language someone might say something to you and it might take you a few seconds to formulate a reply I found that in a sort of like overarching sense with school like it definitely took me a long time to master the basics and catch up but then by the time I was in secondary school I was more academic because I'd sort of forced myself to find other other ways to push to to, to push past some of the like executive functioning problems I was having because of dyspraxia um, which is a sort of waffly way of saying like you both can and you can't hide it like there are some things about it that you just yeah everyone in my life knows I'm clumsy if a glass breaks in the house everyone will be like Lily um, and it would just be known that I've done it but then some of the ways it affects your your thought your thought processing and your executive function more are maybe easier to hide or for instance like if you're like me and your dyspraxia affects your your sort of spatial awareness and you get lost lots and you find it quite hard to navigate or get from A to B, you could leave longer. Um, like you you might set off earlier to get to somewhere because you know you're going to get lost. And so then the person, when you arrive, whoever you're meeting might not know you've got lost, but you might have spent ages trying to find place. So it's, it's a mix. Sometimes you can hide it, sometimes you can't. Yeah, I, su I suppose you pick up a lot of um, tools for for managing it, right, that are quite useful for day-to-day -day stuff anyway. And wh where I'm going with this, right, is like I used to have a therapist who was very dyslexic and his son was very dyslexic as well. And they used to have to really put things in place so that they could navigate life together and do all the things they needed to do. And um, his name was Sean. And what he always used to say to me is what's good for dyslexics is good for everybody. Yeah. And he had so many stuff that I use now today, little tips and tools that I learned from him, but they're really useful for me just to kind of like slow my life down and have a look around and make better decisions. So it's quite handy to have these tools, even if you don't need them, I think. Yeah, I think that's really true. You know, like my husband actually the other day, I was really pleased. He was like, you know, I'm really proud of you. Like you've actually, you've become quite organized in your day-to-day -day life. Like you maybe even struggle with that aspect of your life now less than some other people. And it's, which is not to say that I, I don't struggle with organization because I do, but I'm not like, I'm now not like the most, there are, I'm not the most disorganized person I know. Whereas when I was a child, I definitely would like, and then that's because I have worked so hard to put systems in place so that I'm not 
as disorganized as I, as I once was. And, and you're right. Like there are systems I, I do with sort of keeping, keeping diaries, like looking at my schedule the week ahead, um, that actually anyone can like would be helpful to anyone. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned before that, um, you're more comfortable speaking about it now. Was that a relief when you sort of realized that you could speak about it and just be open about it? You know, is it because I was I think sometimes from kind of I know it's slightly different, but when I think about it, like a mental health perspective, pretending you're OK when you're not is exhausting. Right. Yeah. And so if you're if you're trying to do anything and, and not show your true self in any way, it's really energy intensive to kind of pretend you're, you're all right when you're not sort of thing. Yeah, because that's yeah, because there is a difference between completely covering up something like masking something and like acknowledging that something's a bit difficult and finding strategies to help with that. Because I was just thinking about that as we were when we were talking about ways you can hide things and, and ways you can't. Like nowadays, I'm a bit like, well, why would you even with myself? I'm like, well, why do I want to hide that aspect of myself? So I might now be more open with someone and be like, oh, I left quite a while to get here because I always get lost and. And that would, that's about me sort of like, I've got the, I've got, I'm, I've got the skills and I've got the, I put the skills in place. So I'm working with it from that angle, but it, the skills don't mean that I'm just sort of hiding and not telling anyone about it. I'm, I'm actually saying, this is what I do to help with this, this, this thing that I experience. Yeah. I suppose as soon as you sort of get comfortable with anything, um and make peace with it right and then you know if you're not at war with it then you can kind of find a way to to muddle on together with whatever it is you're trying to muddle along with right yeah yeah Yeah. when you're not at war with it it becomes it becomes a lot easier that's so true yeah very much so so why um why did you start decide to start writing um children's books lily i'm very interested in that well i'd written a book for adults about my experience with ocd um, and people kept saying, oh, well, when are you going to write a book? I love this book. It really helps me with my OCD. Well, when are you going to write something for this young person who I know with OCD? And I was just like, well, yeah, I really should, because I would really have liked that when I was younger. And then also there's the fact that when I was younger, I just enjoyed reading so much, but I didn't always see, well, really ever. Jacqueline Wilson was probably the closest, but you didn't really see characters sort of going through actual everyday life problems. Um, and so I really just wanted to write stuff that sort of had that sort of adventure, thrilling plot element, but had characters in that I actually related to or or would have related to, um, when I was younger. And so it sort of, it, it came, it, it came about that way, really. Yeah. If you're, is it interesting for you, if you're putting, it sounds like there's, you know, some of you in the character in this book and, you know, there was some of your OCD experiences in the the previous book. Is that yeah. kind of interesting, like, you know, exploring your own past and then trying to, you know, to weave it into a, into a narrative? Yeah, it's definitely, it, it is. Yeah. Like my character, the character, the characters I write are never completely me, but they have, they often have like really big aspects of myself put put into them and that's it's quite yeah it's really nice to be able to to share that um with my readers I really enjoy that yeah and uh, when like if you're writing for um writing for young people about like some you know these big challenging topics how do you approach you know writing for kids and not being I don't know like you know what am I saying? Really scary, or yeah, you know what I mean? Because if you write a, a memoir and it's like, boom, this is everything, but you know the people reading it are going to be able to deal with that. But it's different, isn't it, for for children? 
That's, yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I will say that children can handle often more than you think that they can. But at the same time, you don't want to just like really like scare them or freak them out because that's that's no good for anyone. So I guess it's I mean, I'll, I'll always be working with an editor. And if something if the content that I've put is is maybe too bit too grown up or needs not maybe not even softening, but a bit more explaining or then they'll they'll always point that out to me. I mean, it's a it's a. And work with me to achieve that as well. It's a it's a balance between wanting to write something that does accurately portray real people's experiences, and as you say, not sort of making it too scary. We'll always go through several drafts, and sometimes I'll find I've, you know, it's the opposite. I I need to go deeper. I've made it too simple, and I've underestimated actually how much a, a child can handle. And then I think there's the other aspect of that you're threading it alongside a wider storyline. So there's, which sort of helps create pace and a bit of, not distraction, but it's it's more than one thing. Mm. That makes complete sense. Yeah. And it's something that I thought was like really cool when I was like, you know, reading, um, you know, I haven't, haven't read the book yet. I only got it yesterday. So oh, no. I haven't had a chance. Um, but when I was kind of reading like the blurb and, and what happens, because whatever it is that we're going through, that thing although it is all consuming, it never happens in isolation. And a lot of people, um, a lot of, you know, young people might be struggling with an aspect of their mental health or dealing with something and they still have to go to school and they still have to walk the dog and they still have to do their paper round, just like I still have to go to work and you still have to write books and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I think that's really, really important is not to take, you know, whatever it is and make it all about this thing because that's not how it happens in real life, right? Yeah, that's so, that's so true. And it's there's there's always going to be multiple strands of anyone's world and anyone's life and and for instance in in april's world she's got the fact that she's a massive animal lover she's massively into drawing but there are also other challenges she faces that are not even specifically linked to her dyspraxia it's just the challenge of being a a 12 <laughs> 12 year old girl yeah that's it i think sometimes it's really easy to forget how hard that sort of age is when I think back to like being at high school, God, it was, it was hard going, you know, just kind of, um, and I'd say my time at high school wasn't even particularly eventful, you know, but it was hard going, just navigating day to day and wearing the right things and saying the right things and trying to figure it all out. It's mm. like, I don't know. I think it could be really, really useful for someone around that age to be reading about someone else and go like, Oh my God, like, you know, they find this yeah. difficult too. I had no idea that other people found high school hard until me yeah. and all my mates, like, were in our 30s and started talking <laughs> about how hard, how hard high school was, right? You know, it's like, it's, it's yeah. a, a tough time. And I think that's so useful for um, for people to be able to see on on the page, I think. I think that could be very helpful. I could have done with it anyway when I was about yeah, that. Yeah, so could I. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't go back if you paid me. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really... um. It's really tough. Yeah. And to have, yeah, to have other stuff going on as well within that, then it just makes it, um, you know, yeah, a really tough situation. And I suppose as well, if you're reading about anything at all, like it's really good to see ourselves in stuff, but it also really helps us to be able to understand the experience of others. Right. So you can yeah. read, you read the book and you might not, you know, you might not have dyspraxia yourself, but then one of your mates has dyspraxia and then you can understand them. And that's that's really important when you're young as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I feel like there's such a movement in um, middle grade and young adult fiction at the moment towards uh, writing 
uh, neurodivergent characters, disabled characters, um, characters living with chronic illness or mental illness. And I think it's really important. I mean, I read a lot of middle grade and young adult books now and I really enjoy them and I know lots of other adults who who not just authors but like when once you sort of discover the genre you're like wow why did I ever stop reading this stuff it's so good and it's you know I've um there's 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 so many uh books I've read that are sort of aimed for anywhere between sort of like 10 and 15 where I've just really sort of learned about uh, the experience of a character that I that I that I just wouldn't have known about if I hadn't like there's um one that comes to mind is the the boy who made everyone laugh by Helen Rutter and it's about a boy with a stutter and I just I just learned so much from that and but again it's sort of within a world of other stuff going on it's real page turner it's really yeah it's it's sort of developing empathy through reading about other people's experiences is an amazing thing I think yeah very much so and I, I often think things like empathy and, and compassion like we start off with them like everyone has the capacity for these things and it's often sort of like society and experiences that grind them out of us as we get older right so the idea yeah, that we can kind of nurture that in young people is um is really cool you know really yeah. really cool yeah, yeah. and it, it just I I like I'm, I'm my kids are at an age now where I'm starting to read like you know I'm enjoying the books as well right so rather yeah. than like these really slow like little kid books <laughs> and um, we've just been reading one of the uh, uh, David Walliams books Gangster Granny right and at the end like spoiler alert for anyone listening but Granny <laughs> dies at the end right and um my uh, my kids haven't really had any experience with with death yet you know and like you know my son was really upset but we got to we got to talk about death and we got to talk about funerals and we got to talk about, you know, the circle of life. And it just from reading a kid's book about a, like a, a granny who's supposed to be a burglar. And, you know, for a few nights in a row, we, before we went to bed, we had these like, you know, these like really lovely conversations and they got to ask questions. And I thought I could not have brought this up as a dad on my own. There's no way. And there's, yeah. it doesn't do him any favors to wait until someone dies before, well, exactly, to, yeah. you know, That's so true. yeah, it's such a lovely way of um, like opening up like dialogue, I think between, you know, young people and, and parents. Cause that's, that gap, isn't it? Once that gap starts happening when you're a teenager as well, yeah. like, you know, sometimes those conversations just stop happening for a few years, don't they? Yeah. How old are your children? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Yeah. So mine is um, seven and six at the okay. moment. So, yeah. Yeah. But it, it um, I really liked what you said earlier about, you know, children can cope with a lot more than yeah. they can in that, that respect. So, you know, I'm, you know, I've, I've, from what I've seen from like flicking through your books, I really comfortably would like re read them with, with my kids, you know, and I think that would be really, um, I think they'd enjoy. And I think, again, it could be really interesting conversations because we don't have to sugarcoat life. I think, I don't think that sets people up very well for, um, you know, for things that are, you know, may or, you know, something bad's going to happen, right? So there's no point pretending it's not. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's good, mate. I was wondering if we could um, double back a little bit and ch chat about the first book, because this this book and um, and the blue one, they ha kind of happen in the same universe. Is that right? They do happen in the same universe, because um, when I see blue is 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 about Ben and Ben meets April who is the main character in red in at school they're in the same class so Ben um is he's just moved from Essex to London and he's with his family he's sort of finding his his feet his parents um are separating his brother his older brother won't give him the time of day 
and he's got OCD. So he's struggling a bit at school and he's quite shy and he meets April, who is this sort of really quite, well, she presents herself as this quite big, um, confident character. Um, and they just really click and, and have a lot of fun together. Um, and yeah, so they asked, the books are set in the same universe because I wasn't actually planning on writing when I um, feel read. It was just that I wrote this character, April, to be Ben's best friend and I couldn't stop hearing her voice after I had finished Blue. She was like, I've, I've got a story, I want my own book. So that's why I wrote uh, When I Feel Read because she didn't really give me a choice. <laughs> yeah, it kind of had to happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you mentioned that that Ben in the first book has um has got OCD, and I know that's your experience as well. And I was just wondering if we could kind of touch on that for a, a little bit. Was that a, a childhood um diagnosis for you um with OCD, Lily, as well? Um, I did get diagnosed with OCD, but I was fifteen, so dyspraxia is something that I've sort of always known I've had. Um, and uh, OCD was something that I had definitely when I was younger than 15 like throughout my childhood but I um I didn't get a diagnosis till I was about 15 and um yeah so for me it was sort of I I would obsess about things that maybe I had done wrong um and or ways I might have upset someone or even if I had a bad thought I would sort of obsess over it and then the compulsions I would do in response would be that you know maybe I'd have to uh touch something a certain number of times or stare really hard at something until it sort of felt right or um uh perform sort of certain movements to to make to make things feel okay um and then as I was saying earlier when I got um when I got older I sort of in internalized it a bit more and the compulsions became much more mental so sort of like yeah ruminating um or sort of saying in my head, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, or sort of recording mentally actions that I had done and then mentally reviewing them. And it got to the point where it just sort of took up all my time because even sort of just brushing past someone in a corridor, I would have this sort of obsession, like the, it, the image would form in my mind, which is sometimes called an intrusive thought of that, that I'd sort of, knocked them and now they're going to have internal bleeding or whatever and so the compulsion would be maybe sort of saying are you okay or like repeating I'm sorry I'm sorry like like quite an abnormal number of times and then reviewing the action in my head replaying the moment where my arm brushed that person's arm or whatever it was all to do with causing harm or fear of causing harm and um it just took, it started to take up a lot of, a lot of my time. And it got to the point where I just didn't want to even get out of bed because any action could just set off this string of mental compulsions that would just take up a huge amount of time. Um, but one thing I have been thinking about more and more um, is, is the way in which my dyspraxia and OCD interplay and the sort of just, it's 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 sort of come come up more as I've been talk talking about um blue in relation when I see blue in relation to when I feel red and when I feel red in relation to when I see blue is that so much of my so many of my obsessions were around like oh have I moved in a funny way and then when I think about how dyspraxia affects movement and coordination it it just 
I don't. I it it it's they're de they def it's not as simple as sort of just dis distinguishing the two as completely separate um, from each other. I think the the sort of way that they interacted was was quite um, was quite hard to. It still is quite hard to verbalize, and it's you know sometimes you think you finally you've understood something, you finally. I, you've 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 finished understanding something, but recently, over the last few months, and um, in particular, as I said, now sort of speaking about it more, I'm really starting to become quite curious about the way in which my dyspraxia and OCD uh, interact with each other. Yeah, that's fascinating, eh? That's really fascinating. I I think I often think about you know with any sort of um, label or diagnosis or what, however people like to refer to it, um, it's it's often seen maybe from the outside looking in, right? So if people don't understand it or they haven't experienced it as like something extra, like a little bolt on, like, a yeah. little, but it's not right. It's sort of, it is just a part of us that just isn't behaving like, like it should for whatever reason. Um, it's nearly always protective, just a little bit out of control. Yeah. And I always say that it's the same. Um, so for me, you know, I have the same thoughts and feelings and emotions everyone else everyone else mine are just sometimes on steroids right that's just the that, that's the that's the 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 difference but then it makes sense so if that is a part of us then of course all these different things have got to interact at some point haven't they and kind of you know mix and merge and and, and I, yeah that kind of makes perfect sense really I suppose yeah and just I mean I think one thing about um how we work with um mental illness and neurodiversions and disability as a whole in in the UK health care system is that it's often not very holistic like you'll get a referral through for one thing and you'll receive support with that and then your referral for a different issue maybe to being dealt with by a separate team and it's you never sort of um well sometimes it can happen but I think it's a sort of a, an approach of dealing with issues what dealing with issues individually rather than sometimes looking at the whole person and thinking about how these these issues are um interacting and the interplay between them which can be quite interesting yeah. it's like some of the some of the time when I've processed the link between my dyspraxia and OCD has been recently like in private therapy that I've funded uh, from myself and that's been really helpful but it, it it's a shame sometimes I think that we're not that we don't do that sooner um within our healthcare system yeah yeah i think so i think it's you know obviously the um the 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 waiting times and the sheer volume of people it's often about kind of like patching people up and getting yeah. back on the street isn't it and there isn't just the the luxury of time to explore explore these things you know but um yeah it the the idea of looking at it all together and then taking a step back and looking at environment as well, you know, that's yeah. so important. Like what's going on around us, you know, I always like to say, you know, you can't, you can't heal in the same place that made you sick. Right. So yeah. you, you often there's a, there's all these other things going on and it's so, so useful to look at, to look at all of it. Yeah. What did you find um, with regards to OCD was, um, did you find therapy useful for yourself, Lily? Was that, um, was that handy? Yeah. Therapy was really, was, was really helpful. Um I had cognitive behavioral therapy, which is sort of the the standard, um, the recommended treatment for 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 OCD, the most evidence based one. Um, and when you have cognitive behavioral therapy, you sort of you're you're thinking you're thinking about the issues that you face, and maybe thinking actually sort of 
highlighting and acknowledging ways in which behaviors that you do and thought process that you have might be unhelpful and actually working to to change the behavior um and for OCD often that involves doing exposures which is where you sort of you actually intentionally put yourself in into a situation that is anxiety provoking for you where your obsessions are there and you work to um to not engage with them to not do the compulsion that you would you would that you would typically do so an example might be um uh this is so for me it might be i going back to the example of when i if i brush past someone i worried i hurt them it might be that like the first instance the first exposure you might do might be that the next time you brush past someone you only apologize once um and you you'd kind of work you work it up you know so then i i might do that i might get to the point where i even ask someone who i who i know like oh can can i can i bump into you and you do it in 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 such a way that you you kind of bump and you work to do no no compulsion at all not asking not checking uh, not checking at all and you sort of you build you build it up from there until it gets to the point where the anxiety being pr provoked is is less intense yeah that's really interesting actually when you were talking about um dyspraxia and finding ways to um you know incorporate it in, into your life it's almost the exact opposite of what you need to do with ocd right because ocd you're kind of taking it head on you're doing the thing rather than making allowances for the thing does that make sense yeah that does make sense that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it and i hadn't really thought about it like that but yeah that's true you're sort of just not you're not taking any like I won't swear, but you're you're not you're just you you're not taking the OCD rubbish. You're just going no, I'm not I'm not engaging with you. I'm not doing that. Yeah, I always think I've I've spoke to a lot of people um with OCD for this podcast, and it's not something I've experienced of, but I, I have had a lot of problems with anxiety, which is you know the the roots of of OCD, right? So I kind of it always makes sense to me. I always get it when people talk about um like OCD on this on this podcast and. Um, that I had a, a situation recently where I had a really good uh, like work opportunity and I, I flew over to the to the States. But the way it worked out is that we had all these like different like planes and stuff like that. And we weren't, you know, me and my wife and I, we had to like stay up for like best part, like 48 hours across these different time zones and stuff like that. One of my biggest fears has always been sleep because when I get poorly, I go insomniac and that's it. Yeah. And if, I, if I'm not sleeping, something's bubbling on under the surface. Yeah. Um, so I'd... I'd locked myself in this cage through recovery where I couldn't possibly stay up late. I couldn't possibly have a late night. I'd put like naps in my diary to get me yeah. through the day. I was so scared of it. And it was this, it seems, well, if you want to go to America and do this big thing, then you're going to have to stay up. And it, it I was so, it, it took over my life for the month before yeah. we went. It was massive. And then we got on the plane and we did it. And that's, it, it really, it kind of smashed it to bits, you know, like it's not been a problem at all. And you can look and go, um, you know, like, why was that a problem? That was so, that was so stupid, you know? And, um, you know, I know that's not everyone's experience, but there is something to be said for like challenging these things. And sometimes you find yourself in situations where you kind of, you have to challenge it to get to the other side and start to do something you really want to do. It can be so limiting, can't it? Yeah. Well, you did an exposure then. Yeah. Yeah. But I was kind of forced to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like for, no, forced, forced exposure is a thing and that's really challenging. Like, yeah. So that's, but yeah. Wow. Kudos to you. That's good. You did that.
Oh, well, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, not quite sure how I ended up telling that story, but <laughs> but there you go. So you mentioned um, CBT there, and that's like a really interesting type of um, type of therapy as well, because it's like this the CBT and then the CBT, right? So it does seem that like some people is it can be really useful and really helpful when it's done properly. But there's another side of it where it can be, you know, you just get four sessions or someone trains in it on a, on a, I don't know, a, a serial packet course that only lasts six weeks and then they're dishing it out on Instagram. Like they, it does seem to be the the therapy that's, um, but it is, it's very useful, isn't it? When you've got the time, I suppose, to, to work it and to be in it and to, and to really go in, in depth with it. I think the thing about CBT is um, that because it's quite goal orientated um, and often in systems like the NHS, uh, managers are looking to be able to say, look, like we did this and it solved these problems or to be able to sort of uh, work with someone for a shorter amount of time and then discharge them um, from a financial point of view as well. CBT has been overused and overprescribed for sort of anything and everything and often delivered not especially compassionately and delivered in within a sort of, um, yeah, as you said, like a sort of six week framework. And then you're, you know, here are the worksheets and do them and you're discharged. And actually, I um, remember a, a therapist who I really respect uh, saying if you're not doing CBT in a person-centered way, then it's not CBT. And I think that's really important. Like the reason CBT worked for me, for my OCD, was that it was delivered really compassionately over a longer term basis. And it was really um, tailored, tailored, tailored to me. And it was, it was sort of, it was open and it was, it, it, it it's, it's a difficult thing. I, th- I think, I think if you just prescribe CBT for everything and you and you don't tailor it to the individual, then understandably there's going to be people who start to hate it and it's completely fair enough. And so I think it's important with CBT to, if you're prescribing it, to, to, to think, well, actually, is there an evidence base that CBT helps with this issue? Um, and that if you are delivering it, that you do, that it is delivered in in a in a compassionate and person-centered way but of course that can for practitioners that can be hard when they're within a system that's saying that's giving them a huge caseload and saying and you only have this amount of time to work with them it's um you know I'm not trying to sort of just bash the the people who deliver the therapy like it's it's a systemic problem yeah very much so and you know that so much of the roots of any of the issues with any of the treatment support just come down to time and money right which is the the two things that the the system doesn't currently have you know so yeah that's you know it's always important to to acknowledge you know with um i was thinking about like chatting to you today and you know obviously with the book coming out you're probably going to be doing a lot of things like this and a lot of interviews and and stuff like that and you've been advocating for mental health for such a long time now how do you start to look after yourself in this process right when you have loads of people me asking you about ocd asking you about therapy and dyspraxia and all these things how do you look after yourself mate when you do this promo stuff and you got to keep going over and over and over and over it well i i guess what i what i try and do is 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 factor in some time for just for myself within within every day like even even today has been 
you know, I've got had 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 book related stuff on, but the first thing I did today was take my dog for a walk, and that was really that was really nice. And I guess just in terms of school visits, uh, that's another one. I make sure that I'm not sort of doing more than one or two a month. I mean, they've got a big tour coming up next week for for Red, but in general, it's about sort of recognizing my um, yeah, recognizing my limitations in terms of time and energy and and yeah just trying to do more of what I love be that my a dog walk going for a swim I love reading I it takes me quite a long time to read still um because of my dyspraxia which is something people find really funny because they always just assume that I'm a really fast reader and I'm plowing through books I'm really not um There are definitely kids between sort of, yeah, like 11, 13, 11, 12, 13, 14, who I see in kids who I think actually, who I see in school, sorry, who have actually now surpassed me in terms of reading speed. I'm quite a slow reader, but that doesn't matter. I set aside time to to relax at home and read and, you know, and so, yeah, uh, a, a bunch of a bunch of different ways, I suppose. Yeah, balancing it out. That's such a um, a really important thing, I think, when it comes to supporting people's mental health and well-being is to, like, ask yourself the question, when did I do something that I really enjoyed? Yeah. Because quite often if you're having a, you know, if you're starting to, I don't know, maybe experience a bit of low mood or feel things slip a little bit and you ask yourself that question and then you might look and go, oh, do you know what? I've not that thing that, you know, to sit with a cup of tea and a, and a, and a book and just read for half an hour. I've not done it for months. And, you know, yeah. it makes a difference, right? And it was making me think actually about how when you said earlier about how sometimes the things that help with a certain thing like dyspraxia or dyslexia, dyslexia might just be wider things that could be quite useful for anyone is like I do quite a lot of timetabling because of my dyspraxia um so that I just like try and keep keep abreast of my schedule and don't start forgetting places that I'm meant to be but one thing I've started doing in the last few years is actually scheduling um like on my to-do list or within my day rest time or time for reading or whatever and it's quite satisfying to be able to when you're ticking off or clean the kitchen or like like said my emails or whatever to also then be able to tick off reading I read my book um I don't really know why but there is something quite satisfying about sort of acknowledging that you yeah I did that or even when you sort of when you see when you set it as a task for yourself I guess you get the little buzz of that you ticked something off your to-do list but it was a it was a nice thing yeah it's like a double whammy right you get to do yeah. something you and you get that little dopamine hit of yeah because sometimes if I don't put these things on my to-do list I don't end up doing them and they are just as important because they're the things that are going to enable me to do the other stuff long term yeah definitely I always think it's a bit of with some of the fun stuff it's a bit like out of sight out of mind you know I carry my book around with me everywhere and then if I get 10 minutes like I'll just, yeah. I'll just sit and sit and read it but if I just leave it upstairs next to my bed out of sight out of mind if I've got 10 minutes spare I don't think oh, I'll get my book out I think oh, yeah. I'll just go like go on Instagram and you know like do something yeah. a bit rubbish so yeah, yeah it's uh, out of sight out of mind but normally I wrap these up by saying like what's coming up next but your what's coming up next is happening like right now today is the thing um <laughs> But it sounds like you've got a, a busy, um, busy, you know, few weeks coming up with the school stuff and 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 all of that. It sounds like you got your hands full, Lily. Yeah, I do a bit, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate. Well, um, yeah, it's been so lovely to chat today. Um, it's been wicked. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to giving your book a read. And thank you oh. so much for your time. It's been lovely. Thank you. It's been so nice to be on.
to big up to the proper mental podcast. <laughs> the proper mental podcast. <laughs>